0: to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez and joining me this week is our producer, Stephen Trader. Hey, Stephen, how's it going?
1: It's the second to last opinion day, Natalie. It's going very well. We are reaching the end here.
0: That's right. I feel like you and I uh, kind of switched places a little bit this week. I was a bit nervous and antsy about all the opinions and knowing that this is the last week and everything has to come out i mean not has to but we're expecting it to i
1: I like knowing what's happening though this week it's like we i know we have these five are happening and that's what i like so
0: yes and so things have been happening and i will say that the justices have kind of sprinkled the big cases uh, throughout the week so far here um we had opinions come out on tuesday which included The big North Carolina voting rights case that we'd been watching, and we're going to be talking about that one a little bit later. We spoke with a Columbia Law professor expert who um, kind of kind of gave us the the four one one on what that case uh, means for future litigation and just the breakdown on the opinion.
1: Yeah, and then Thursday morning today, we're recording this on Thursday. The court released three more opinions, uh, the blockbuster affirmative action decision, that was arguably one of the most watched of the term, but some other important ones as well. The justices decided the religious liberty case involving a former Postal Service employee who had sued after being required to work on Sundays. He won his case today, and actually, I'd like to direct everyone over to our sister podcast, Pro Se... They are actually talking in depth about that decision today with our Law 360 senior employment reporter about what that case means. So, so tune in to them to, to get a little bit more on that one.
0: And so getting that one out of the way, let's focus on the other big case from today, which was affirmative action, arguably one of the most divisive cases of the term.
1: Yeah, it really was. Everybody had their eyes on this one. It was arguably, uh, out of all the blockbusters, it was probably one of the bigger ones, the biggest one. Uh, On Thursday morning, the Supreme Court effectively gutted affirmative action in higher education. A 6-3 majority held that race-based admissions policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. We are joined by Law360 senior Boston Courts reporter Chris Villani to explain the opinion and its sweeping implications. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, you have quite literally been tracking this case for years. Uh, you have come on our show and and talked about it many different times and different iterations with us and explained it to us. but just for old time's sake, one last time, can you just walk us through the the specific policies that were at issue in this case?
2: Yeah, it was October of twenty eighteen the bench trial in front of um, Boston federal judge Allison Burrows, and the cases were both filed in twenty fourteen. so almost a decade now for the entire length of the litigation. And the underlying allegations, both suits were brought by the group Students for Fair Admissions, which is backed by an anti-affirmative action legal strategist named Ed Blum, who's guided a number of cases to the top court. And they sued both Harvard University, the nation's oldest private college, and University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, nation's oldest public college saying that their race conscious or affirmative action admissions policies run afoul of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which essentially became the holding from the majority opinion authored by Chief Justice John Roberts uh, earlier today. So the argument was that effectively admissions is a zero sum game. And if there's some sort of balancing happening on account of an applicant's race, it's negatively impacting mainly white applicants or asian american applicants at these two schools that was the argument that sffa made at the lower courts they lost up until this point Um, judge burrows in boston ruled in harvard's favor and said that the admissions policy at harvard isn't perfect but it's enough to pass constitutional muster because prior Supreme Court cases had held that you can consider race in a narrow way. Uh, UNC also won at the district court level. Judge Burrow's decision was affirmed by the First Circuit. They bypassed the Court of Appeals in the UNC case because I think everybody knew where this was heading to the Supreme Court. And that paved the way for the arguments uh, last year that you referenced, last October. It was Halloween, actually, October 31st. And of course, today's decision on the second to last day of the term.
0: Which is where the streak got lost. Top level, can you tell us what was decided today?
2: Sure. So it's interesting because there's nothing in the opinion that effectively says or specifically says, I should say, that the prior holdings concerning affirmative action, mainly the 2003 uh, Supreme Court ruling in Grutter v. Bollinger, is overruled it wasn't as clear as, for example, Justice Alito's opinion in Dobbs, which said uh, Roe v. Wade is overruled. However, it really just gutted and, and, and took the heart out of those opinions. So the ruling says that the current admissions policies are not narrowly tailored. In other words, Harvard and UNC aren't following the Supreme Court Precedent. So they're violating the 14th Amendment. They're violating the Equal Protection Clause. And it goes a step beyond that because it also says that the interests that the universities argued provide the basis for affirmative action, which is training uh, an effective, you know, the next generation of leaders uh, in the pro- public and private sector, or the benefits that come from having a diverse campus. Essentially, the Supreme Court said these are too vague to survive any sort of judicial scrutiny. And also that it has to end at some point. And we heard this in the arguments in October, there was a lot of focus on what justice, former Justice O'Connor wrote in the Grutter opinion, which was essentially putting a 25 year self-imposed deadline on when affirmative action should sunset. We're kind of at that point now. If you look at the next class that's coming into college, by the time they graduate, it will be 25 years removed from the 2003 holding. And the majority opinion said uh, enough is enough. This was always supposed to end at some point. The Supreme Court said this was supposed to end at some point. And that time uh, has arrived. And the chief justice said, look, 20 years has passed since Grutter. There's no end to race-based college admissions in sight, i'm quoting from the opinion now such admissions programs must comply with strict scrutiny may never use uh race as a stereotype or a negative and must at some point end and the supreme court decided that the time for those policies to end is now
1: and we also heard um so this was six to three and the three liberal justices were were in the dissent here and um i think notably one pen by Justice Jackson had some strong language. Can you talk about what the dissent responded?
2: Yeah, so Justice Jackson descended in the, uh, dissented in the UNC uh, case. She, she recused herself from the Harvard case because of her connections to the school, but it was always expected that the uh, three Democratic-appointed justices here were going to be in the minority. And the dissents really focused on the fact that saying that everything should be colorblind and and race neutral is nice but it's not reflective of the reality of our world and uh justice sotomayor who also authored a dissent here said the limited use of race has equalized educational opportunities essentially it's leveled the playing field it's improved racial diversity on college campuses which again the majority rejected as uh, even a basis for affirmative action, finding that it's it, it's just too vague that it can't really uh, survive any sort of of uh, analysis by the courts, and the door that was left open seemingly by the majority opinion um, that said, you know, the 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 court opinion doesn't mean that race can never be. Uh, Considered and and maybe leaving some some avenues there for schools to consider race in ways that are not direct, you know, a student's background, overcoming challenges. Uh, Justice Sotomayor called that putting lipstick on a pig. It's again nice to say, but in practical terms, the opinion really just gutted what had already been or what had been established, which is that race can be used as a narrowly tailored. Plus factor. So they definitely took uh, a lot of swings. It was somewhat reminiscent of Dobbs in that it was talking about decades of precedent being overruled. The liberal justices said this is uh, taking a step back. Uh, Justice Sotomayor said the the court, the majority opinion, rolled back decades of momentous progress and said that the impact can be devastating. The Vision of race neutrality that the majority uh, uh, writes about here will, in the words of Justice Sotomayor, entrench racial segregation in higher education because racial inequality will persist so long as it is ignored. So definitely a a strong dissent. And and we knew that would be the case because this has been such a charged topic, really, uh, since it started working its way through the district courts years ago.
0: Let's enroll the impact a, a little bit further. What do you think is going to be the, the the fallout, essentially, for universities, companies, other organizations um, following this, this decision?
2: Sure. Well, the short answer is universities are going to have to be really careful now about their admissions policies. Now, there are ways they might be able to achieve the diversity that they want, either um, again, using some sort of, I guess, proxy for for race, whether it be something with socioeconomic standing or looking at a particular uh, student's uh, ability to succeed despite a challenging upbringing. But some of these could be challenged, right? Because if it becomes, and Justice Roberts says this at some point, it's 276 pages of, of opinion, so I can't find it right at the moment. But The chief just essentially said you can't do indirectly what we are saying you can't do directly, which means don't try to get too cute here and find a way to uh, uh, use race in the admissions process in some other way other than directly using race in the admissions process. So schools are going to have to be really, really careful. I think beyond universities, the workforce and, and the employment context is going to see uh, uh, some challenges. Number one, you look at what happened in in California and in Michigan, where you already can't, because of of state decisions and state laws, uh, use race in the admissions process. There's no doubt the number of Hispanic and African-American students has gone down. The numbers have worn that out. And the race-neutral alternatives they've used have not gotten them back to the level of diversity that they say they want. That's something that can trickle into the workforce if you're looking at fewer... Uh, people of Hispanic or African-American descent who are now getting into these these top universities. And the fact that the majority opinion flat out said diversity might not be uh, a compelling interest or is not a compelling enough interest here for colleges and universities, maybe an argument could be made that it's not a compelling interest or shouldn't be for employers to have a diverse workforce. In other words, if it's not uh, enough of a benefit in colleges, why would it be in a professional context as well. So that's going to provide uh, or, or pose some challenges, I think, for employers as they look at their own DEI initiatives and and kind of what they're doing in that context. And like everything, right, it, it could pave the way for a lot more litigation. If there are challenges, whether it's from SFFA or others that say, okay, they're not using race directly here, but they're they're trying to find some end around way in the higher education context or the employment context to subvert what the majority opinion was here. That could absolutely lead to, to more litigation and more challenges and probably a lot of very fact specific inquiries looking at what a particular school or a particular company is doing uh, when it comes to trying to diversify its workforce or its student body.
1: Chris, you have been walking us through this case for a very long time and taking time out of your very busy day today A blockbuster opinion, for sure, one that we've all been paying attention for. So thank you very much for taking the time with us and walking us through this one.
2: Uh, happy to, and I guess this will be the last time. There's no other place for the, the case to go.
0: Oh, I'm sure we'll we'll have you back for another case yeah, down abso- the road.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you.
0: So as I mentioned up top, we're recording here on Thursday, uh, but we did have another big opinion come down on Tuesday, which was the voting rights case out of North Carolina, Moore v. Harper. Big way to kick off the week, right, Steve?
1: Yeah, it sure was, Natalie. So this case questioned whether state courts had the authority to review state legislative actions like the drawing of election maps. And with a 6-3 majority, the court actually rejected the notion of this independent state legislature theory That would give state congresses unfettered control to set federal election rules. And I mean, this was a case that really did have the power to transform democratic elections. It came out on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, we actually recorded an interview with Columbia law professor Richard Berfalt, one of the nation's leading experts on election law, voting rights, and the political process. And we wanted to get his insight into what this opinion meant and just how impactful it would be on voting rights. So we are going to play that for you now. Welcome to the term Richard it's great to have you.
3: I'm happy to be here.
1: So before we dive into um you know the opinion of this case I thought we would just kind of set the stage for our listeners and explain a little bit about what independent state legislature theory is and kind of help set up the stakes of this case.
3: Sure um it's a pretty new theory it really only really got going in, in around the 2020 election. And it's never really been sustained by the Supreme Court before, and they didn't do it now. It builds off the specific language in the Constitution, uh, two provisions of the Constitution. One that says that um, the rules for the time, place, and manner of congressional elections will be set by the state legislatures. And a very similar provision that says that the rules for electing the presidential electors, the electors who make up the Electoral College, will also be set by the state legislatures. So that was the idea, is that the Constitution gives the states uh, the power to write the election rules, and the vast majority of our election laws are state laws. Questions come up to what extent when states do that, when they apply their election laws to federal elections, to what extent do state constitutions apply to them? Uh, To what extent can state courts uh, review what the legislature has done or review what state administrators are doing? And. And say that the state election law should be interpreted in a new way or in a different way. A lot of this came up in two different ways. Once uh, some of it came up in the context of the 2020 election, the COVID election, when all, you know it was an unprecedented election, uh, problems with the polls. Uh, many many people sought to uh, ease the votes for absentee voting, ease the rules for drop boxes, and put a new change the deadlines. And those often went through state courts and some state courts agreed with that. And that was challenged as being beyond their capacity because it was the state courts doing it. The other way it's come up, and this is the case that went to the Supreme Court, is when state courts read their state constitutions as prohibiting partisan gerrymandering. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has said that the U.S. Constitution does not deal with partisan gerrymandering, but a number of state courts have said their state constitutions do. And that's what happened in this case. The North Carolina Supreme Court said that the North Carolina Constitution forbids partisan gerrymandering. And so it threw out the districting plan that the North Carolina legislature had adopted. North Carolina legislature sued, basically saying that under this theory, that the state court did not have the authority to set aside the state legislature's plan, that only the state legislature, independent of its constitution, write the rules for congressional districting that's how the case got to the supreme court
0: now with the 6-3 opinion on tuesday the court rejected north carolina's arguments um let's turn to that opinion now can you tell us a little bit um exactly what the majority said in this opinion
3: majority basically rejected the idea that the what's called the elections clause the provision of the constitution that says the state legislatures write the election laws for federal elections rejected out of hand the idea that that precludes state courts from applying their state constitutions uh, in dealing with federal elections. Um, The court said there's been a long tradition of state courts reviewing state legislation, uh, that going back to the founding, state constitutions have sometimes directly affected federal elections, and that the Supreme Court had in earlier cases upheld various aspects of state constitutions that impact of federal election law. So the court, uh, by a vote of, as they say, six to three, uh, said that basically rejected the idea of that theory. Um, But the court did say at the very end, and it's not quite clear what this means, is that although state courts clearly can apply their constitutions, they have a role to play, Supreme Court also has a role in reviewing these state court judgments to make sure they are not, and the court didn't really come up with a standard, but they're not too far out of line, that they don't seem to be too great a departure from state law, uh, that, the, that the state Supreme Court is not making something up uh, when it's reviewing state election law. What exactly that means, we don't know. Uh, and that's what we may learn more in future litigation. So state courts, the court confirms that state courts have a major role to play. Um, that was the issue. But they also say, we, the U.S. Supreme Court, have a role to play in reviewing what the state courts do and the phrase that uh, Justice Kavanaugh, who wrote a concurring opinion, used is we, U.S. Supreme Court, should be deferential, but it shouldn't abdicate. And that's kind of where we're left as a result of this decision.
1: Right. The the state courts don't have free reign, I think, is what John Roberts exactly. wrote exactly. in the majority. Um so I want to talk a little bit about the impact of this case. Um, there's been a ha- lot of he- headlines and, and news coverage. I mean, I even said it in my own introduction that this case could have really altered the democratic process. I mean, is it fair to say that? And what what do you think we're going to see after this? Is there more litigation to come? Or or what does this really, really mean?
3: Okay, let, let me break it up to, th- to three parts. Two of them deal with gerrymandering. A number of states have amended their constitutions. To expressly either prohibit gerrymandering or shift redistricting to independent commissions. This case clearly confirms that. Uh, one, of the, one of the arguments in independent state legislature theory is that state courts can't review, uh, state constitutions cannot limit how state legislatures gerrymander. That argument is now out the window. Uh, state constitutions that, and there are a lot of state constitutions now that do directly address districts. Less clear are the cases, and this was North Carolina, uh, where the state supreme court reads very general language like uh, "free and fair elections" to prohib- prohibit gerrymandering. So we don't know whether the supreme court will take a look at those. But I think if, if the if the North if the state courts are are treating state legislative districting and congressional districting the same, then there's a good chance that they'll be allowed to do that. The next big category, and that's what we're likely to see maybe in the uh, in the in the 2024 election for all the many many times when a dispute comes up as to a meaning of a state election law something say dealing with absentee voting or uh, vo- voter ID, uh, voter ID or potentially the certification of electors in a presidential election. this case confirms that state courts have a role to play and they can uh, review, they can challenge, state legislation they can interpret state legislation they can enforce state laws but it also does mean that potentially some of their rulings could be subject to further federal court review and that's what we'll see there was a lot of that in 2020 um where where again these issues were raised but not resolved 2020 was we hope an unusual election in terms of all the things that resulted from the pandemic but you know we're 18 months away from, the, or 16 months away from the 2024 election. So we don't know what kinds of issues are going to come up. And that's where I think we may see some some litigation.
0: When you put it that way, it seems so much closer than I had originally no, actually, been thinking. I think it's closer
3: than I said, because the primaries are, I don't know, seven, eight months away.
0: That's true. That's so, true. Um,
3: no, we're, um, we may see some of this even by the tail end of this year. Uh, in terms of questions about qualifying for the ballot, stuff like that.
1: I did want to ask a question about because I think it's so interesting yeah. how everybody thought that this was gonna get punted and everybody was kind of pushing for that. Yeah. That was so,
0: me. I thought it was gonna get punted. Yeah,
1: everybody <laughs> did.
3: And what happened is after the Supreme Court took the case, even after the oral argument in the case, which was last November, there was an election in North Carolina and several members of the North Carolina Supreme Court were replaced. And in effect, it went from a Democratic majority to a Republican majority. The North Carolina legislature, which is Republican, basically sued to reopen the case for a rehearing. And the North Carolina Supreme Court agreed and basically uh, overturned themselves and said gerrymandering does not violate the North Carolina Constitution. And the Supreme Court asked for a new briefing on this back in March. And so I think many people thought, well, the case would be dropped as moot, um, given that there's no longer an issue in North Carolina and actually a good chunk of the supreme court's opinion was on why the case isn't moot there was a kind of a technical piece to it which is the north carolina court never actually withdrew the opinion that was being challenged and so they never actually reinstated the map that they'd thrown out they kind of repudiated their own reasoning but they didn't actually reinstate the old map so the majority said it wasn't moot um candidly my sense is this is an important issue. It's been kicking around now for the last several years. There are other cases that are going to raise this issue, but by the time they get argued, it will be much closer to the 2024 election. This case was very fully brief. There were tons of amicus briefs. The oral argument was more than two hours. So the issues were fully ventilated. And I think they felt that it's it's good to get this issue decided in, it's better to get this issue decided in 2023 than in 2024. They don't say that. They basically do a very technical discussion of when something is moot and when it's not. But I do think there was a sense the case was fully briefed. It's an important issue. Let's resolve it now.
1: Right. Which is part of that huge impact. Um, you know, the the fact that they did take care of this now rather than wait allows elections to play out in a certain way in 2024 yeah, yeah. so.
0: Now, this case was the second of two big election law cases that the justices had this term. Alan Alan V. Milligan decided earlier this month, um, struck down a potential gerrymander in Alabama, and was a bit of a surprise, I think, to most court watchers. Um, What do you make of the court's election law decisions this term?
3: Yeah, the court seems to have um, been much more protective of voting rights this term. In both cases, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion, and in both cases, he was joined, for the most part, by Justice Kavanaugh. In the Independent State Legislature theory case, he was also joined by Justice Barrett. You could argue that these are, I'll call them small C conservative cases. In the Milligan case, that one be Milligan, which involved districting in Alabama, uh, was a Voting Rights Act issue and involved kind of uh, racial districting. The court basically reaffirmed existing law, existing precedent, which, and the lower Court in that case had found that Alabama's uh, districting plan uh, denied voting rights to to black voters and required a new plan, and the the Supreme Court said yes, they were right. Uh, if you apply precedent, they were right, and so in that sense, they were just it was not breaking new ground, but sticking with the old ground. And you can say the same thing in Moore v. Harper, the the uh, Independence of the Legislature Theory case. That case had never been rec- that theory had never been recognized by a Supreme Court majority, and between criticism, we're not recognizing it now. So in that sense, they're, I would call them small C conservative decisions. On the other hand, they were decisions that made liberals and progressives very happy.
1: This has all been so interesting. I think it's fair to say we didn't even know if Moore v. Harper was going to be decided this term. A lot of yeah. folks thought that they might um, push this one down the road, but we ended up getting two fairly dis- surprising decisions. And, um It's really interesting to have you explain the impact of those we really appreciate you coming on the show today richard my
3: pleasure
0: so steven that was a lot to break down today um so far this week all these cases but the week's not over and we are anticipating the last two cases to come down tomorrow in which case we listeners we will be back uh in your audio stream tomorrow
1: yeah that's right i mean so it goes on the final week of opinions but we do have two left They are the Biden Student Loan Debt Cancellation Case and 303 Creative versus Elenis, the LGBTQ rights case out of Colorado. Um, So we are going to be back on air. When when those drop, we're going to plan on talking with more experts and covering those too whenever they come down, likely Friday. So I guess, Natalie uh, and listeners, we will see you in probably less than 24 hours.
0: One, one can hope I, I hope the Supreme Court doesn't like throw a curveball and decide to like make Monday's opinions but I don't think so I think I think it's going to be tomorrow so I, I,
1: I think it, we're just going to say it it's just going to be tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> otherwise they're going to get a strongly worded letter from us <laughs> but yes it's been great talking with you Natalie and uh, look forward to covering the rest of these with you
0: likewise Steve and thanks to our listeners. Uh, if you like this episode, please leave us a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to give a big thanks to our guests this week, Richard Burfault and Chris Villani. And a shout out to our reporter, Haley Fowler, who helped contribute uh, to reporting uh, for this episode. Music for the show comes from Thunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law slash the term. You can also find us anywhere. Listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening.